I have a three-week-old son at home, which is pretty fun. Yeah, it is. Uh, thank you. It was a lot of work, so I appreciate your applause. That was, uh, uh, I'll just move on for that. Uh, yeah, a number, number of people have said very kindly, you know, you look better than expected, to which I say, so do you. You look better than expected. Um, but it is, it is weird in this Advent season, you know, Taylor, my wife, you know, is, is uh, getting better slowly but surely. Uh, you know, they don't tell you how violent that stuff is, childbirth, until you see it, you know. And she's, she's a champ, and it's pretty good, you know, but I had to watch, and she, just didn't, she didn't have to watch, so, so there's a... Um, you know, they offered her a mirror, and I'm like, what on, like, some of you, some of you are mirror people, you know, and good for you, but I'm going, she, she said I had to focus, I'm like, yeah, that's why, yeah, that's why, yeah, that's why. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting even doing this Advent thing, you know, talking about the birth of Jesus, you know, I haven't held a lot of infants in my life, uh, you know, until mine, you know, and, and I think he's cute, you know, but it's one of those things where everyone thinks their kid is cute, you know, I mean, I've seen other kids who people think their kid is cute, and I'm like, ah, you know, he's, we'll see where it goes, you know, but there's, there's, but my kid is cute, you know, he's a great, he's a great kid, you know, and, but it is, it's weird thinking about the baby Jesus thing, and just this totally vulnerable infant thing, you know, who screams and cries, and they tell you that's a good thing at the beginning, you know, and I'm like, well, you don't have to wake up with him, you know, he screams and cries, and, but it's, so even like we have this change, and I figured out, and I think about the baby Jesus, you know, and I think, I wonder if he could, also pee four and a half feet. <laughs> I know it's four and a half feet because that's the distance from my changing table to that chair Taylor was sitting in when I was, <laughs> when I was changing. So, so his, his, his bladder's working, his lungs are working, he's crying, peeing, and uh, it has been rich. It's been sweet, and it's, it's fun to get to talk about it just, just the insanity of Advent, that God becomes flesh that he chooses to uh, enter into the womb of a young woman and be born and be vulnerable um, and all that that represents and all that that looks like. And it make, it, I'm beginning to empathize, not agree with, but empathize with those first century heretics who taught that Jesus didn't actually come in the flesh, that he just came like, like a hologram, you know, like an illusion, that you know, no God, no eternal perfect spirit being could you know, soil himself on a regular basis and debase himself to the human experience. So I'm, holding, I'm beginning to understand why people thought no God could become flesh and be born. That's, that makes, sense, makes no sense. But that's, that's part of what we believe as Christians, right? Is that Gabriel comes to Mary and says, you're going to be with child. And you're going to call him Jesus, which means the Lord saves. And he's going to be the hope of the world. And the idea of an infant being the hope of the world, you know, you grow up hearing the Bible stories, or at least I grew up hearing the Bible stories, and it sounds like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And then you have an infant, and you're like, this was, you know, I know God's sovereign and wise, but this had to have been like a plan B situation, <laughs> you know, like God become an infant. But you just see that the willingness of God to enter into our experience and become vulnerable and become human and to cry inconsolably when he was hungry and to be unable to communicate and for his nervous system not to be fully developed and for him to have the fall reflex that wakes him up when he shouldn't be waking up, you know, and, and all these little, these things. And it's just, there's a, there's a poetic beauty to the willingness of our God to go through this and to be developed and to grow. And we're talking about Advent. And, and the whole point of Advent that we're talking about it right now is we're looking at the first coming of Jesus, Christmas, when he became an infant with 
hoping that looking at the first coming of Jesus will train us and help us look forward to the second coming of Jesus. You know, in our Advent little hour, if, if you have your little program, you can see in it, there's a little manger in one side and there's a trumpet on the other side. You know, and there's the first coming of Jesus, he comes in a manger, second coming of Jesus, he's gonna come and trumpets are gonna play. And it's gonna be the end of sickness and sin and death and it's gonna be good. But hope is just, I'm sure that there's people in this room who you hear hope and it sounds like the most cliche, nonsense, not connected to my life, pile of garbage. Right? Like I know that when Taylor and I first got told we were pregnant, our first reaction was not hope, it was actually fear. Because we've had a lot of really close friends, have a lot of really brutal miscarriages. And we're kind of going, feeling like you're riding a bike for the first time, you know. And, and there's like this weird sense of fear of, but what if, but what if, but what if. And then they tell you to have hope and you're like, on what basis? And I think a lot of times what happens is we end up thinking about hope as just being wishful thinking or being positive or optimism or some type of denial of the difficult parts of reality. And I think that for most people in this room, we've had those moments where someone tells you to have hope and you're going, what does that even look like? What does that mean? And so I want us this morning to even think about the the reality of our hope. You know, we're hope-shaped people. uh, But is it optimism? Is it positive thinking? Is it... Is it something else? Is it totally otherworldly? Is it just something after death? Or is it impact our here and now? How do we kind of experience this? Because I think that in many ways, becoming a Christian is actually stepping into a more emotionally complicated reality. And I want us to look in this text. I want us to talk about hope. And we're going to see just a couple of things about hope. Um, but really, we're going to see what hope requires and what hope produces. And we're going to see that there are two things. So here's kind of where we're heading, where we're going. We're going to see that hope requires grief and grace. And that hope produces service and sanity, uh, sober thinking. So let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll jump into this, this text. Father, thank you for being present with us. Uh, thank you for sending your son. Thank you that we um, can, this Christmas season, reflect on uh, the first advent so that we can uh, hopefully learn to look forward more so to the second advent. God, help us be honest emotionally and theologically, and I pray that we can see how good you are in this text. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. Amen. So I, uh, one of the things that my three-week-old son and I have in common is we're equally useless around the home when it comes to like fixing things. So I got my water bill in the mail yesterday. You know, and usually we use between four to 6,000 gallons. And so you look at the little graph and it's like this. But then last month we used 19,000 gallons, you know. And I put in a water softener last month and I thought like, maybe water softeners just do that. You know, I don't know. And so I texted my buddy who's a plumber and I said, hey, did my water softener do this? Or what else is going on? And he texted back, ha. You know, and I'm like, I don't know this stuff, man. So he, so he calls me and says, go look at your meter. And I said, you're going to need to be more specific. I don't know what that word means. <laughs> And so he's out your front door, six steps to the right. He's like, okay, now go turn off your, your water main. And I'm like, deaf ears, man. You're going to talk to me like I don't know what you're talking about. And he's like, water main. What would you do if there's a flood in the house? I was like, I called you. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> That's what I would do. So he's troubleshooting things back and forth. And he's, I don't know what's going on. And we're looking at the thing and it's moving. And he says, all right, now before I tell you this, I want you to know that I have hope. And I was like, crap. <laughs> 
because you realize that when you think things are basically fine and someone comes announcing hope, you go, wait a minute, what? What's wrong? Because if you have hope, then you are rejecting the status quo and rejecting normal. Right? Imagine if your spouse came to you and you think things are basically fine in your marriage and she comes up to you and says, all right, we need to have a talk, but before we have this talk, I have hope for us. <laughs> right? And this is kind of, I think we, we live in this kind of, you know, the suburban pipe dream. I think for a lot of us, we think things are basically fine. Yeah, things could be better, but they're basically fine. And then we come announcing hope and it's this actual rejection of the status quo. We're saying the way things are are not the way things are supposed to be. Right, and I think about this text right here, um, that Mary thinks things are basically fine. She's kind of living her life. She's engaged. She's getting what she wants. And then out of nowhere, the, the Holy Spirit um, moves Gabriel, David, Gabriel, the angel to come. Angel means messenger, and he speaks to her. And he says, you're going to have a son. They'll call him Jesus. He'll be great. Called God. He'll be great. He'll be called the son of the most high. He'll be of the throne of David. And Mary's going, I liked the way things were headed before I became the centerpiece of this God having an agenda thing, right? And, and she's shaken, and what's going on? But we have to also enter into not just Mary in this moment, but also Mary as a first century Jew. That this language of the Son of the Most High, in verse 35, who'll be called Holy, the Son of God, that for Israelites and Jews, these are not just neutral uh, words. They don't just come out of nowhere. But if you've been with us, maybe you haven't, but we just went through the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, Israel, God's people, are called the Son of God. They're meant to be the representation of him to the world. They're called to be the vehicle of God's blessing to the nations. But Israel, this is, you know, um, hundreds of years after the fact, Israel has again and again and again proven themselves to be failed sons of God, that they fail, that they rebel, they sin, they make idols, they choose to go a different way, that the son of God is failing in his one task of representing him to the world, and it's failure, 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 and because of that, they get disciplined and sent into exile, and things go bad, and eventually they have a king named David, and saying, David, his throne will reign forever, and we're going to have this promise, and guess what, we're going to have this kingdom of God thing, and David's going to do it, and then they fail, and they fail, and they fail, and no one is sitting on the throne of David. And Israel, the son of God, has failed. And they're being oppressed. The religious and ethnic minorities in a first century context. Has God's promises failed? Has God forgotten us? What's gonna go on here? That they are not at peace with the status quo. That they are eagerly awaiting to find out after 400 years of silence, will God show up? Will he do something? Is this gonna go? Is his promise gonna play out? Or are we just gonna sit around and forever just be oppressed and marginalized and exiled because we blew it? Did we miss our shot? Is it game over? And here comes Gabriel and he says to Mary, your son will be called Jesus, which means God saves. He will be the son of God. Where Israel and God's people have failed again and again and again, your offspring will be the one from Abraham who succeeds. Your offspring will be the faithful one. Your offspring will be the sinless one. Your offspring will be the one who changes the trajectory of God's people. But you see that this announcement of hope would not have been good news had they not been in an already a state of grief. That Christians in particular, I think we tend to be bad at grief. 
because we think that grieving, being sad, lamenting, and I I don't mean just the normal attention-seeking whining on Facebook stuff. That's not what I mean. And I also don't mean the woke warriors on social media who are just looking for things to be upset about. I mean like real, in the flesh, grief, connected to people who we love, letting our hearts be shown, lamenting and grieving the fact that things are not the way they're supposed to be, that parents bury their children, that children bury their parents, that we've walked away from the faith, that there's suffering and dying. Uh, Some of it seems purposeful, some of it seems purposeless, that things are not good. And I think Christians are nervous to go there because we think that grief equals I don't trust the Lord. But I just wanna say that even Romans 8, 28, which says that God works all things together for good, that does not mean that all things are good. It means that God works all things together for good. And very often, we don't get to see that good. Very often. And so we look at Israel, that they're in a state of grief, they're in a state of loss. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. And so here comes the announcement of hope. And they're going, the status quo is changing. And I want us as a church, so this is a complicated emotional reality, that that to recognize that hope requires grief. That until you're ready to admit that things are not the way they're supposed to be, until you're ready to admit that the status quo is not a good situation, until you're ready to admit that life is suffering and pain and that things are generally difficult, you'll hear about hope in Jesus and you'll think, that's good for other people. And if you're not in somewhat of like a chronic state of grief, then you're not ever going to be in a chronic state of hope. That this is a dual reality, that we need to be grieving and hoping, and grieving and hoping. And I just want us as a church, Redemption Gateway, as one of your pastors, that if you're not grieving the weight of brokenness of the world on a regular basis, you're either in denial or you're insulated. You need to look, you need to see, because the Bible's true and the creation is cursed doesn't mean that it's also not blessed. It doesn't mean it's also not creation. But we should have some measure of a walk with Olympus, Christians. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Hope requires grief. What do you need to grieve? What have you been avoiding grieving? I want you to look at it, grieve it, and recognize that when Jesus comes back, he will make all things new. And if you think he has nothing to make new, then you're not going to look forward to the second coming of Jesus. And I think we get this. I think we believe this deep to our core. I mean, you can look at the last two major presidential switches, so trigger warning or whatever, you know. So, 2008, presidential campaign. What's Barack Obama's catchphrase? Hope. Do you remember what John McCain's was? One he lost, it didn't matter, you know, but like the, but it was like prosperity or something, you know. But if you thought George W. Bush was basically fine, and then Barack Obama comes announcing hope, you're offended by that, right? Hope. 2016, Donald Trump comes along. His phrase, make America great again. That's another way of saying hope, right? There was a time when things were good. Now they're not good. Maybe in the future they can be good again. Right? The, not, the question is not, are we hope-shaped people? Because that's a true thing. We are hope-shaped people. The question is, where are we placing our hope, our ultimate sense of hope? 
Is it in short-term political victories? Is it in promotions? Is it in prosperity? I just want us to even just recognize that even like the, our politicians are really trying to instill hope. And again, if you thought Barack Obama's basically fine and then Trump comes along and says, make America great again, then you're offended by that, right? Because if you think the status quo is good and someone announces hope, then you don't like that, right? So everyone's looking for hope. The question is, where do we get it? And I think we need to recognize that hope requires grief. It requires that. Second thing hope requires is that hope requires grace. See, I think that a lot of times we think that in order um, to participate in the hope of the new creation, in order, to, in order to participate in what God is doing here on earth, that we need to somehow earn something or do good, right? And even sometimes people can look at Mary and say, she got to do this because she was sinless. Right, but look with me in this text. So verse 28, Luke 1, 28. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Later in verse 30, and the angel of the Lord said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. So favor, we kind of mess it up in our minds because, you know, we as, if I said like, which one is your favorite child? Um, you would say, oh, none of them, but you would have one, you know? Like, like it's easy for me right now, I have a favorite child because I have one, you know, and that's pretty good. But if, if you talk to a teacher, who's your favorite student? Like that's based on something, right? Favor, what's your favorite place to eat? Well, based on blank, this is my favorite, you know? But favor, especially in the scriptures, is a, translating most often the same word as grace, Genesis 15, Noah found, or Genesis 6, Noah found favor with God. He, he was, God had grace on him. Here, this word favor could equally be translated grace. You found grace with the Lord. That Mary's participation in the hopeful um, restoration of all things is contingent upon the fact that God has given her grace and favor. It's not she's favorite because of some reason of who she is or what she's like, but it's the fact that God in his grace looks at us. And here's the reality is I want to notice that if you think that you need to do something or earn something in order to rest in the future hope of God, then you're going to never take a break. You're going to constantly be striving. Some of you cannot take a day off. Some of you feel like you haven't, you can't like take a nap until you've earned it by cleaning the whole house. Some of you think that you cannot take a vacation until you think you've earned it by breaking some records. Some of you think that you cannot just rest in the fact that God loves you until you've somehow gone without sinning that one sin for like three or four days. But as long as you think that your participation in new creation, your participation in what God is doing on earth is contingent on your efforts, one, you'll either end up super self-righteous because you'll think you'll succeed in which case you just have too low standards, or you'll end up constantly dismayed and bummed out because you think I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough. And I, just, you know, I did this at middle school camp the other last year. I said, how many of you struggle with thinking you're not good enough? Raise your hand, all the hands went up. And I said, you're right. <laughs> but that's the point of the gospel, right? Is that God in his mercy extends grace to sinners who don't deserve it. And if you think that's some reason you don't deserve to participate in Christmas because of some sin that you have in your life, guess what? You don't deserve it. And it's the blood of Jesus and the grace of the Father that allows us. And so some of you need to, as a spiritual discipline, choose to rest even when you think you don't deserve it. Because hope 
in a certain future, second coming of Jesus to make all things new. I'm not talking about hope for next week because things might be bad next week. I'm not talking about hope for six years from now because things might be bad six years from now. I'm talking about hope when Jesus comes back and makes all things new. That no matter how bad things get, as soon as you die, they get better. <laughs> like deep-centered hope that that is on grace and grace alone. Here's the next thing. So this is that I want us to look at here in this, in this text is that hope produces some things too. It's not just what it requires. And notice both those things that requires, the thing that it requires of us is to grieve. The things that it requires of God is grace. It's like the only thing we need to participate in hope is to acknowledge that things are not good. Other than that, it's God's grace. So here's what hope produces. Hope produces service. We can look at Mary here. So Mary you know, is worth admiring in, some, in many respects. Some of you might remember we just preached through Exodus and when God comes to Moses and tells Moses, he gives Moses a job, Moses like protests and complains about it for a couple chapters. Mary doesn't do that. Mary kind of you know, tends to kind of get on board pretty quickly. So, she, so verse 33, and you, he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? She's not protesting, she's confused. Right? Sometimes we think that being confused by what God is doing equals we don't trust what God is doing. Here, Mary's confused by what God is doing, but yet she's still kind of a willing participant in saying, you know, take me along. Like, it's okay to be confused by what God is doing. Oftentimes, it takes us a while. So she's confused. She seeks understanding. The angel answers her. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. What if God's plans for you included you being overshadowed? Are you okay with that? Are we okay with that? The child born will be called holy, the son of God, and behold, your relative Elizabeth and her age also conceived a son. She's in her sixth month. Nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be for me according to your word. See, sometimes we also think, and you know, people like Karl Marx who say that religion is the opiate of the people think that this kind of pie in the sky, um, good old times are gonna happen equals non-activity here on earth, right? That if you believe in Jesus can come back and make all things new, therefore you'll sit around and not try to make things better. Therefore you'll, you'll sit back and relax as the world burns. Therefore you'll sit back and relax while things are going um, not well and you won't actually get active in doing things. But this is the opposite of what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that when you have a certain future hope in the fact that Jesus come back and make all things new, it produces participation and service. You get on board, you get engaged. If you're on a basketball team and you hear that LeBron James is being traded to your basketball team, you practice harder because you recognize that we're gonna win and I wanna do the best I can. Here, Mary's attitude, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. One of the ways you can know whether you actually believe whether Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead and make all things new or not is do you have this heart posture? He's coming back for certain, I'm a servant of the Lord. Jesus is coming back. I want to be ready. Jesus is coming back. I want to participate in what he's doing here and now. It's just a foretaste. It's just a shadow of what the reality that's coming, but I want to look forward with everything that I can. It produces service. Right, eventually, as we're getting more and more pregnant, and you know, Taylor was getting more and more pregnant, and I was gaining sympathy weight, but we were getting more and more pregnant, you know, and eventually it was like 32 weeks. It's like, we've got to get this you know, room ready or something, right? Because this baby's really coming. This is not just like... A, a shadow. You know, this, is, this is really happening. You know, when the fact that the baby was coming, we said, well, we've got to get busy. We've got to get this room ready. We've got to get prepared. We've got to paint the walls. Well, I didn't think we had to paint the walls, but we had to paint the walls. 
Hope produces service. You know, I had a mentor one time who most of what he said wasn't very good, but he said this one thing that was really good. You know, and it was, it was his, his, his marriage advice. And it was, he said, hey, when, here's, here's my marriage advice. He said, we're hope-shaped people. And what that means is that I think you should always have the next vacation planned for you and your wife, whether it's four weeks out, 14 weeks out, 14 months out, you know, have the next vacation planned. I think that's a good thing. I give that advice to people in pre-remote counseling. I know that's kind of like a, a semi-wealthy thing to even say to consider that. But this is reality that like, if I have hope for our marriage, I will now look to serve my wife. I will now creatively look to plan and engage and participate in what's going on, both for her and, and for me. We're hope-shaped people and hope produces service. And the last thing that hope does is it produces sanity. See, this is going back to us at the beginning. You know, is hope just wishful thinking? Is hope just otherworldly high expectations? Is hope just resigning yourself to whatever happens, happens? It just produces fatalistic passivity. But I want us to recognize that hope produces sanity in us. And by sanity, I mean insanity is being out of line with reality. Insanity is coming into alignment with reality. Right? So like my infant right now, you know, he screams and wails when I'm doing things that are helping him. That's insane. You know, I try to reason with him, it doesn't work. You know, <laughs> I'm, I am changing your diaper. I am helping you, right? I'm giving you to, I'm helping you. You know, I am, and he's just screaming, screaming. And I think that a lot of us in our infancy, especially in faith, is we scream and yell. And until my infant grows up and matures and has experiences of me that I'm trustworthy, because right now I'm just not mom, right, which means worse, you know, so, but until he experiences me as, you know, a trustworthy father, he won't, he's not going to learn to trust me, so there's like this, I want to be earning his trust over time as he develops in his maturity, and I think a lot of us in our infancy faith stages, we tend to, you know, see when God is doing good things for us, we protest and yell, because we're, but that's, and that's part of the natural development, but when we don't receive the good things that God's giving us, it's because we're out of line with reality. It's my experience, I need to own it, I need to process through it as I'm experiencing it, but it is my work to bring myself in alignment with, with reality by conforming my mind to God's word. And here we have Mary, who's, or the, the Gabriel, the angel, who's saying this, that he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is not wishful thinking, this is true. The second coming of Jesus is not wishful thinking, it is true. The fact that Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead is not wishful thinking, it is true. The fact that Jesus was crucified for our sin and risen on the third day is not wishful thinking, it is true. And so if we reject the reality of the way the world actually operates in favor of a different story, if we reject the fact that God is at work in history, if we push away the risen Lord because we have questions and doubts and we're not willing to deal with them, if we think that the resurrection and second coming is wishful thinking not true, we are the insane ones. Like my brothers and sisters in Christ, do we actually believe that it is sane to think that God took on flesh, entered a womb, exited a womb, grew up, lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary death, was buried and was raised, and therefore he is now causing us to be born again? Because the reason we even celebrate Christmas is that Jesus was born so that we can be born again. 
This is 1 Peter 3. It says, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That this is what we look forward to. This is what we celebrate. This is the reality. That if we understand that to be Christian is to be sane, then in many ways when you are converted, when you turn from your sinful ways in faith and repentance to follow after Jesus, you go from being insane to being sane. You go from being out of sync with reality to being in sync with reality. And that is a long process that the Christians engage in. But we as Christians believe that the tomb is empty, just like Mary's womb is empty. That Jesus is coming back, not like he came back the first, not like he came the first time, but differently. And that is fundamentally good news because we reject the status quo as being basically fine. We grieve our present state of reality. And we celebrate the fact that God entered into our broken, sinful history and is making all things new bit by bit. But ultimately, our ultimate hope is not in next week being better, not in two months from now being better, but it's ultimately, finally, in fact, that Jesus will come back and make all things new. Let's pray as we uh, continue our Advent season. Father, I pray that when we're tempted to question or uh, when we feel like we're not good enough or when we sense that we have to be better in order to be in relationship with you, I pray that you will expose that for the lie that it is and we'd see that it is you who causes us to be born again to living hope. That it's by your grace and by your favor that we participate in what you're doing. God, I ask with that same sense of eager expectation and hopefulness that Mary had when she was told that she was going to give birth to the Savior of the universe. I pray that we would have that same expectation and hope as we look forward to your second coming. God, help us deal honestly, emotionally with the pain and brokenness of our present world. Help us not look past that or dismiss it, but I pray that we can have hope in the midst of having grief. God, thank you for being patient with us as we grow. In the name of your son, we pray, amen.